0: Good morning, good morning, good to see you. Um, Each week as a church we have teaching from the Bible to help us hear from God what he would be saying to us in a moment. And we were supposed to be starting a new teaching series this week. We're going to be looking at the the chapter, to the, the book of the Hebrews chapter 11 between now and Christmas. But I've decided to push that back a week because I want to respond to some of the things that I think God's been speaking to us about as a church over the last few weeks. It was great to have Simon with us. Last week and what he brought, Uh, but just through Simon and I think through several others, um, people's courage in stepping forward and in sharing about who they are, what God's done in their life, I think God is speaking to us about several things, namely his his plan for us as a community to be a people who are free indeed. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. For us to be a family who knows one another and what's going on in each other's lives. That's what makes us meeting like this so different from so many other quite similar meetings in the world or in perhaps other religions. It's this idea that we're not really just here to sing songs and to hear a talk. We're here to be family and to learn to minister to one another, to pray for each other, um, to allow God to use one another, to encourage each other. But this morning, I want to speak on the subject of greatness, of significance, of comparison, and of true greatness. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18 to start with. We're going to look at three snippets from the life of Jesus, things that he said about the theme, and see what God has to say to us this morning. Um, remember that feeling as a child when you got a gift for Christmas or your birthday or something, and you're really pleased with it. Until you went to school and you found that another friend had got like the genuine version and you'd got the fake. (laughs) Often it was the same with football t-shirts. I remember getting this Liverpool shirt. I'm sorry, I've been forgiven for that sin. Um, But I got a Liverpool shirt one day for Christmas, thought it was exciting, and then saw my friends and it was a fake. My parents had spent a couple of quid on me instead of a proper shirt and I felt cheapened. But I was happy with my gift until I compared it to others. And that's, you know, amusing and slightly painful as children. But as adults, it gets even worse because we don't just compare presents. We compare lives. We compare jobs. We compare spouses and friends and churches and gifts and abilities. And we're forever comparing ourselves to one another. G.K. Chesterton, the British writer from 100 years ago, he said, comparison is the enemy of joy comparison is the enemy of joy and many of us know that all too well. Um, I want to speak today about an issue of contentment for us that comes from this chronic comparison. What is it that makes a man matter in the world? Where does a girl's greatness come from? What, what is it that makes a, a man or a woman super? And who gets to judge? Who gets to decide who's great, who's significant? We live our lives as though we are contestants on a game show performing in preparation to stand before a panel of judges who will critique us on our performance. Every day we go through this experience in some form or another. The only trouble is we don't really know who's going to judge us and what we're going to get judged on. And so it it was when we were reading through Matthew's gospel recently that this theme just jumped out at me. Several times Jesus addresses what greatness is and how his people are to behave and to be different. And so let's get straight in. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Verse 1 At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the disciples were young men. We'll pause there. The disciples were young men, each of them with their different reasons for following Jesus. For some, it was the allure of piety and becoming known as holy men, um, being associated with a holy man. For others, it was the promise of danger the requirement of courage to get caught up in a revolutionary's a revolution, um, <laughs> revolution, revolution. that sounds, that's exciting, isn't it? For others, it was to really just to have their name included among those that had given everything to follow this Messiah, to roll the dice of their life on this man, to bet themselves on him. But whatever their reasons were for choosing to follow Jesus, all of them had this one thing in common, that they wanted to be thought of as great. They wanted to matter. They wanted power. They wanted prestige. They wanted popularity. So they come to Jesus asking this question. And Jesus, it says in verse 2, calling to himself a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you become, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these earnest, desperate, insecure young men all stare down at this child who's just sort of standing there wondering when he can go and play football with his friends and carry on. And Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And all of the disciples to the man thought to themselves, well, that's good because I'm quite humble. I've got an advantage on the others. Jesus says significance looks like humility. It looks like self-forgetfulness. Significance looks like being overlooked by others and not minding it. All right, next, next scene. That's the first. We'll look, at two other, uh, we'll look at two others. But the next one, several chapters later in Matthew 23. So Different from the last one. This one in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples the scribes and the pharisees the religious leaders of the day the scribes and the pharisees they sit on moses's seat and so practice and observe whatever they tell you do what they say cuz you know they have a, a, a status and authority you should obey do what they tell you but not what they do don't do what they do for they preach but they do not practice they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear And they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all these deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylactery was a box that contained part of the law of Moses. And was this part you'd put on your head to remind yourself and others of your piety to keep the law of God before yourself. They would make these things big and their tassels on their religious clothing brought long to display their piety and their impressive status before God. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers and sisters. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. See, one attempt at greatness is the approach of performance, Performance performance-related power and prestige and influence. And it's this approach that in all likelihood, all of us are most guilty of and most trapped by. You see, the people that Jesus describes here, they're the kind of people who they love to give life advice and stand in front of crowds of people. <laughs> they love to present their best selves to the world. They love it when their names get mentioned in public, when someone acknowledges the role that they played in helping them change their lives and sort themselves out. These are the sort of people who insist that everyone arrives on time for their meetings, but they saunter in late when they're not in charge. They keep up with the latest status symbols. They have the right car, the latest bit of tech their Bibles are always big and they're always making a display of their religiosity. Their books are always on display when you visit them in their homes. Their houses are always tidy. The smell of fresh baking is always in the air. And they are forever guilty of what's called the humble brag. Are you familiar with the humble brag? This is, happens on social medias everywhere, all day. Um, this is something that describes itself as a statement of humility and gratitude, but it's really just a brag. Um, an example would be, uh, so humbled that I should be given an award of outstanding service. Hashtag undeserving. Or uh, someone else might put, so grateful that so many people would attend my birthday party and say such nice things about me. Hashtag humbled. <laughs> Let the reader understand. I'm really quite awesome. Those are the sorts of people that Jesus is describing. And to be honest, this approach at greatness, this... Um, popularity-based approach to greatness, performance-related significance. That approach is is something that almost everyone in the modern West is guilty of. We are obsessed with image and images. I was on a train over the summer and there was these two teenage girls and this girl took about 20 selfies of her and her friend before she posted it. 20 selfies, just making sure she got the right light and the right pout and the, the right I don't know, facial expression to convey to the world, this is me. You know, we all like singing the this is me song from The Greatest Showman, which is basically saying, doesn't matter what people say, this is me. We don't really mean that. We're like, this is me. No, this is me. No, this, this is definitely me. This one's me. This brilliant version. This is me. There was a, a fascinating new game show that um, Amy and I got hooked on. Probably shouldn't have done. It was a bit trashy, but, you know, don't judge me. Um, Fascinating new game show was essentially a popularity contest based on social media images. They put these people in an apartment for three weeks called The Circle um, and they forced people to interact with one another having never met each other purely through a screen and typing or saying um, comments about themselves, updating statuses. And so it's fascinating. So people just invented alter egos and different versions of themselves to try to become the most popular person. Interestingly, the person who won was the person who pretended to be someone he really wasn't, pretended to be a girl. He had this picture of a beautiful girl and then kind of backed it up with this really sweet personality and everyone was fooled and thought, oh, what a lovely girl. And they were looking forward to meeting her and when he walked out, (laughs) "Ah," they felt betrayed. But that's the approach of many people um, for greatness in the world. This is our world of image management. Amy told me she recently found an online video blogger, a vlogger who was giving tips on how to do your makeup for the school run. You know, when you haven't got a lot of time, this is how you do your makeup to present your best self on the school run. And she thought, that's a lot more than I do in a week. (laughs) That's a lot of makeup for a school run. How much time do they have? It's easy to laugh out there, but I mean, the church is just as guilty as everybody else in a lot of ways. There's a website called pastorfashion.com. There actually is. This is terrifying. It's a website called Pastor Fashion that it aims to help preachers communicate the message of Jesus whilst looking good at the same time. I will let you decide how often I visit it. <laughs> but in this world, this world, we become great by imitating the right people or by learning to say the right things, by being the most woke or by having the most politically correct opinions, or eating the most organic, or being the most vegan, if that's the fashion these days. We work hard to make sure that our values and our opinions line up with the liberal elite, or that they're liberal enough to be palatable for the media, or for the shifting sands of popular opinions. We become fakers. Nevertheless, it's in this way, that this is the the water that we swim in, and it's in this way that we learn what greatness is by presenting the right image of greatness, even if that's all it is, an image. And so we constantly compare ourselves to others, to their image presentation, to their life, to their kids, to their job, to their church, to their presentation of how wonderful their things are. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this is this is an issue not just for you, but for me that I'm having to break free from. This is a, the water I swim in as much as everybody else. And to be honest, I've sown in this soil for a long time as well, as far back as I can remember. I've been obsessed with trying to make sure I put the right image of myself out there. I've tried to learn to be great and to be significant by learning to say the right things, to behave in the right way, to make sure that I'm liked by the right people, that I have the respect of the right crowd that for me I think that's the people I want to like me. I remember a while ago it was probably probably about a year ago I preached a sermon over at our our, our church sister church over in Eastbourne sister church another church over in Eastbourne and speaking in Eastbourne is always a bit I always really enjoy it because it's like an ego trip in one sense because there's a big crowd like 600 adults and if you make a joke That's not a very good joke. You get a big feedback of laughter. Wow, I feel good about myself. And I remember one Sunday, I preached this message in Eastbourne. And it was a good message. I had memorized it, so I learned it by heart. I had props, I had stories, I had jokes. But when I finished communicating it, I got off the stage, got in my car, driving back to Seaford. And I was thinking to myself, that was weird. Not many people complimented me this morning on my sermon. I, I thought it was a good sermon. I was mulling this over in my head. And this little voice just said to me, if you live for the praises of people, you'll die by it as well. If you're so obsessed with trying to please people, you'll be elated when they like you, but you'll despair when they don't, or when they don't compliment you. And that's a reality that I've felt for a long time. What do I do? How do I break free from this? Comparison-based significance, for me at least, has been eating me alive and uh, uh, what I found as a result of this was that my world was becoming smaller and smaller because I would avoid the places, avoid the people, I would avoid the conferences that raised an awareness of these issues in my life. I think, I hate going to conferences because there's so many other impressive people and I'm not very impressive in comparison, so I'll avoid the conferences. I hate going to that place because when I go to that place, it reminds me that I'm just a small fish. And so I found myself becoming more and more isolated. Even friends of mine who have lives that I envied, I found myself avoiding. And so it was producing greater and greater levels of isolation. You see, performance-related or gift-related significance, like that of the Pharisees with their public displays of religiosity, ultimately it leads to loneliness because ultimately it pushes people away. Because it provoked, people provoke envy. Now I noticed I was becoming also more and more controlling, more irritable with my kids, less relaxed, less content with what God had given me. And Jesus says of these people, of the Pharisees and of scribes and of people like myself, Jesus says, don't be like them. And then he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant." Or I like how the message translation puts it up here. He says, do you want to stand out? Then step down. Be a servant. If you puff yourself up, you'll get the wind knocked out of you. But if you're content to simply be yourself, your life will count for plenty. You want to count? You want your life to matter? Step down. Step away from the game. Don't play by the same rules. Notice what Jesus says, though. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. He isn't exactly saying, make sure you serve one another. Instead, he's saying it this way. This is how you'll spot great ones. They'll serve. That's a great one right there. And that flies in the face of how we appraise things and how we rank and rate people in our minds. We appraise greatness in worldly terms. Whatever the public performance or Instagram images, Jesus says, you'll, you'll be able to spot great ones differently when you're in my kingdom. See, true greatness and true significance is hard to see. God alone sees the heart, or we judge by outward appearances. And it's always been that way with God. It's often the things that the world overlooks that God looks most intently at. It's an old man and an old woman who are not really of any particular significance, who are pagans, shepherds living in the desert, who've never had any kids and can't have kids. It's to an old insignificant couple like that that God came and said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many. It's to the boy that wasn't even brought into to the lineup of brothers when the prophet was in town saying, I want to make someone a king. This boy was left out in the fields who went on to become King David. It was a Messiah who behaved in a way that no one expected him to, who said some outrageous things and offended people. It was him who they strung up on a cross and murdered him. Those were the great ones. Those are the great ones in history. And let's look at the final final story, the final snapshot. Two chapters prior to this in Matthew chapter 20. In verse 20. Then the mum, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. You see, when Jesus had said the greatest will be a child, the boys obviously went home and told their mum about it, and she wasn't pleased with that answer. She said, a child? My boys have given up everything to follow you. This woman, interestingly, uh, it was probably Salome, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So this woman, in all likelihood, is Jesus' auntie. These boys are his cousins. I think it's fair to say Now, this woman was likely also pretty feisty, which may be where her boys got the name from. Jesus nicknames them um, sons of thunder, maybe because of their mouth and their kind of attitude. That's that's the common um, observation. But maybe, just maybe, when he says the sons of thunder, he's talking about this woman, thunder herself. And thunder herself is taking matters into her own hands. I want my sons, your cousins, to be guaranteed status in your kingdom. Now we've all been in those conversations where we are talking at cross purposes. You, you, you're, you talk to someone and you're using the same word, but you're meaning something very different by it. And it's very hard to communicate in that environment or in, in those conversations. I I learned recently of a woman from Spain who moved to England and for a while she went around telling people, telling her work colleagues that she was constipated. She even said on one occasion to someone she hardly knew, I've been constipated for almost a whole week now. The reason for that was because in Spanish, the word constipado refers to the common cold. (laughs) So she was telling people I've had a common cold all week. Well, at least she thought she was saying that, using a word that had very different meanings to the one she intended to it. And Salome here the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she's blissfully unaware of how odd it is what she's asking for. She's a assent- because in the way that Jesus replies, she says, make my sons great, one on the right hand, one on the left. In the way that Jesus replies, he essentially says to her, you don't want that for your boys. <laughs> you don't want that for your boys. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered her, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And they, the sons of Zebedee, said to him, we are able. Presumably thinking, we can drink anyone under the table. We'll do that. Jesus is referring to his death when he talks about drinking this cup. But they are still imagining sitting in a palace next to this king with a chalice in their hand. Bearing responsibility and power. Thinking, yeah, we can drink that cup with you. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. And so presumably his auntie's happy. She got what she came for. Her boys are going to drink the cup of power. Although he means something very different from what she means. The boys are also secretly glad that mummy stepped in and asked. It was a bit awkward until then because they were, you know, mummy's boys. But now, finally, Jesus said, you will drink the cup. And they think, oh, okay, They think, okay, we can can trust the father with who gets to sit where. Okay, we'll trust God, but we get to drink his cup. Fine, I'm happy with that. We're not going to be nobodies. And then I love it. I love how the story goes on. Because then it says, when the 10, the other disciples heard this, they were indignant at the brothers. Of course they were. Who do they think they are, these boys? Who does she think she is? The cheek to ask such a thing. I'm sure they would have thought to themselves, everybody knows that, I mean, did you not hear the thing about the child? Everybody knows that in this troop of people, we're all equal. We're all equal. Brackets, I'm probably the greatest though. So listen to what Jesus says next. Jesus called them to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. You know how it works in the world, guys. Jesus acknowledges the reality of this world, the way that it impresses itself upon us, teaches us with his examples. In our society, people who clean our toilets and empty our bins aren't valued as highly as people who perform pop songs. Teachers aren't honored as much as chat show presenters or sports stars. And hitting a golf ball with a golf club really well makes you far greater and worthy of respect than if you were to devote yourself to a child with special needs for your entire life. That's how weird our world is. If greatness comes from worldly power, then firstly, only those who are born in the right part of the world, or born into the right family, or with the right opportunities, have any shot at all at greatness, if that's where it comes from. And if that's the case, then of course we're going to want to manipulate everything we can to control every situation to get greatness. Like Salome here, that's what she's doing. It tends to make you quite controlling if that's what greatness is. She's not content to let the Son of God decide things, who gets to be great and all of that. And so she tries to control things for herself. Gets in there first. There's a fine line between being a pushy mum and a control freak. She's crossed it. I remember a while ago reading about a dad whose sons were training in a football team and the coach repeatedly wasn't picking them to play in the starting lineup for the match and all the friends and peers of this father were getting quite cross on his behalf saying how do you feel isn't this annoying your kids they're not getting picked and his response was fascinating he said no I'm not frustrated about it. In fact, I'm really pleased about it. And I'm not going to defend their cause because actually by being overlooked, it's actually teaching them far greater deposits of character and resilience than being picked would. I thought that's that's another way of seeing things. It's not often how a parent behaves. We fight for the best for our kids rather than allowing the world to knock us into shape and give us resilience. Then listen to what Jesus says next. He says, you know what it's like You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority and then this. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. That's not what we're here for. That's not how we're operating. That's the way the world pursues greatness. Of course it is and significance. Of course it is. But that's not how we're going to do things. It mustn't be how we're going to do things. The church... Jesus' followers, his community of people, in its organization and in the things that it honors, must not honor and celebrate and treat as great the things that the world does. I mentioned before, the church has often been guilty of this. Of course it is. It's a mixture of sin as well as truth. We're broken people. We break people. We create broken systems. We create a model of church that puts people at the front for 40 minutes and we all sing along or listen to them. And that does something to a person if you're not careful. To speak in front of crowds or with the age of the internet and, and TV and mass evangelism and crowds coming to hear, that does something. That creates a hierarchy of greatness that is almost opposite to what Jesus is talking about here. It must not be so among you. It must not be so among the church. And see the world, those outside of the church, maybe you if you're not a believer, you're crying out for people like this. You're crying out to see a community like this. It's crying out to see people who don't share its warped way of valuing things or its economy driven way of valuing things where we just value things that are worth money or are useful. It's crying out for people who are transparent, who are pure, who are whole, who are alive, who are secure and free, free from the systems, free from the image obsession, people who aren't as image oriented or as status-minded as the world, because Jesus then says this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm told that in the U.S. forces, the higher up your rank, the further back you stand in the dinner queue. No one tells you to do this. It's just part of the culture. It's just assumed. The higher up you are in rank, the further back you stand in the dinner queue. And the saying is, leaders eat last. This is a lovely idea, isn't it? Leaders eat last. I've quoted that to people several times, especially when I've not been hungry and I've been in a group setting, I'm very happy to go, leaders eat last. I'll go to the back and let you go first. It's very different altogether when I'm hungry. I'm like, stupid idea that is. That's part of why, though, as a church, we insist that in order to be a member or a partner of this community of people, you have to find a place to serve. Not because we want free labor, not because we want to get jobs done, Not because it's a good or noble thing to volunteer. I mean, that's how the world operates, isn't it? Volunteer, it's lovely for the community. And it's important to be a good patriotic member of the society. Volunteer. No, we do it because we want to define greatness around how Jesus defines it and not around how the world defines it. Reading on, though. Last few verses. As they went out of Jericho... A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped, called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus, the son of man, God Himself came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And in the very, that's what He says, and in the very next instant, He kind of models that. He serves. What do you want me to do for you? It's another way of saying, How can I help? I'm here to help. And the very fact that these men are then healed by Him, He wants to show to His followers the difference of authority and greatness. That comes when you pursue this vision for significance and a view of significance that's very different from that of the world. Jesus said, I've come to offer my life as a ransom for many. The truth is that we are, or we feel, a lot of the time, enslaved to the world's way of appraising things. And Jesus came. To buy us, to ransom us out of that way of operating, to set us free for a new way of being human. A new way of appraising and pursuing greatness and significance. You see, because of what Jesus has done for us in purchasing us and in buying us out of this system, Christians are now given a significance and a status beyond anything That you could ever have achieved or acquired on your own. And it's a status and a significance that has nothing to do with the place you were born. The country you come from. The education you've had. The amount of money you've earned. Whatever your parents are. What your genetic makeup is. Nothing to do with that. In Christ, you are significant. In Christ, you've been given a status because of him. Listen to a few of what the Bible says for Christians. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Sometimes we sing a song where it says the church is the hope of the world. We are the hope of the earth. And I always sing that and think, that sounds a little bit arrogant. Sounds a bit proud. Who am I? But that's the point. You are the hope of the world, salt of the earth, the light of the world because of Christ. In John chapter 15 and in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that you, if you're a Christian, you are a channel of God's life to the world. That you are his representative on the earth. See, in the beginning, God created man, male and female, he created them in his image and his likeness. The human beings bear the likeness of God in some profound and mysterious way that is beyond a lot of explanation. At the corruption of the world, at the, at the fall, when things got broken, we still possess the image and likeness of God. You still have a dignity and a value given to you by God. But in Christ... It gets restored, not just to what it was like in the beginning in Eden, but in Christ. The Bible says that you are a branch of Jesus, the vine. That you bear fruit for God because of him. It says that you are God's ambassador on the earth. If someone wants to know what's God like, someone wants to know what's Jesus like, the answer is, look at his church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says you and I, Christians again, are the temple The dwelling place of God on the earth. That you are holy. You are powerful. You're significant. Oh yeah, but I don't have a car like they've got. I don't have a job like they've got. I don't earn as much money. My house is nothing compared to them. I'm stupid. I I can't read those books that they talk about. Who am I? We have this often. I see Jason at the back. I have this often when I go visit Jason. Because Jason's like... Like Uber alpha male, if you know Jason. He's the man that all the men want to be, and all the girls wish they were married to. Um, it's not true. Sorry, that's a weird thing to say in public. Sorry, Jason. But the point I'm getting to is that often I'll go see Jason for help with practical things because I was not blessed with common sense. Um and so I'd often turn up at Jason's house and a few times ago I was driving to visit Jason and my kids in the back, they said, Dad, why do you always need to go see Jason? I was like, Thanks, boys. I might not be Jason, but because of Christ, I'm the temple of God. Jason's the temple, I'm kidding, like we're brothers. He's the temple of God, I'm the temple of God. We're ambassadors of God, we're new creations in Christ. We've been called saints and holy ones. We've been given a ho- purpose and a hope and a future. We're channels of the true life force of God into the world, the salt of the, earth, the light of the earth, the light of the world. And we squabble over, yeah, but I haven't got as much common sense as him. And I can't do that job and I, can't, I don't earn that much. Jesus' death on the cross has made all of this possible. You see, when Jesus died, he died to ransom us, to free us from worldly visions of greatness. And his death then has the power to break the spell and expose the lies that we've been believing and living for. In a dramatic form, look how it did it for Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In Matthew chapter twenty seven, Jesus is crucified. And as he's crucified, he dies, and either side of him you have two thieves, one on his right, one on his left. At his death many of his disciples have fled, but not his wife, not Mary the mother not Mary Magdalene, and it says this among those among whom were there at Jesus' death were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. At that moment, when she saw two other men on his right and on his left, in positions of greatness, she realized that her request that was denied, and her prayer that went unanswered, wasn't a bad thing. She became glad in that moment, that Jesus had turned her request down and overlooked her foolishness in how she used the word greatness at that moment she understood greatness perhaps for the first time and she understood what Jesus meant by it you see the lies and the trappings of this world and this worldly greatness were exposed for her it was shown for what they were lies and for many of us, we approach God with lots of questions. What about this? Why can't I have this? I-, I thought I was supposed to be significant. I want to be like them. I want to be like them. I wish I was like her. She can do this. He can do that. And we say, God, why won't you answer my prayer? Why won't you give me their life? And like the mother of the sons of Zebedee, we sometimes need to stand at the cross and realize, oh, I'm glad you don't always give me what I want. It doesn't answer all my questions. Of course it doesn't. But I'm glad that you're in charge and i want to receive truth from you but then listen to what the apostle paul a writer of the letters in the new testament says he points out how her request although aren't denied for the in that moment there her request was actually granted and answered but not just not in the way she expected it and not just for her sons but for all of us in ephesians 2 verse 6 it says that christians are seated with christ in the heavenly realms You are seated with him in a position of power and of prestige and of honor far above what you... I mean, you see this often in the world. Our attempts at greatness, we grasp them and then they're gone for a moment. France, elated in July when they won the World Cup. We're on top of the world. Come October, who cares? The French might. (laughs) But we don't because we didn't win. But who cares? Every... I mean... City winning the league, amazing. The real question now is, can they do it again? Or are Liverpool going to get it? Because that's how greatness in the world works. But in Christ, it says you have a righteousness in heaven that does not spoil, does not fade, does not perish. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Do you see Jesus' example for us teaches us, and Jesus' death frees us to be more significant than we ever could have achieved on our own through our own image management and status squabbling. In Christ, we're the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth, we're ambassadors of God, we're the channels of his life into the world, we're fellow workers with God, we're ministers of reconciliation to God, we're temples, we're witnesses of Christ's resurrection and of God's work on the earth, and we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are Christian. Don Smith, who's known to many of us who planted the church in Eastbourne, would often say, if you're a dollop and then you become a Christian, you're still a dollop, but now all these things are true about you. You might think, I'm just a dollop. You're a dollop who's royal now, who's been given significance far beyond what you could imagine. When you become a Christian, God doesn't press an erase button and just change who you are and turn you into someone completely new. New personality, new family, new makeup, new issues. No, he doesn't. He takes you, all those issues, and bolts onto it, Christ's righteousness and holiness. So now here you are. This is your experience of life. Broken, aware of your brokenness and sinfulness, but significant. You and I are the hope of the earth. And all this, not because of our work or our status or our gifts or our abilities or our salaries. Not because we're like Jason, but because of him, who he is. And what he's done. And we're going to pray. We're going to respond together by breaking bread. But let's take a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us. Thank you that in Christ we are more loved, and more significant than we could ever have imagined achieving on our own. And I ask that you'd help us as a church to appraise things properly. Let it not be so among us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.